The 100% Wild Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, the nation's number one GPS hunting app. Download today in the Google Play and App Store. All right, welcome back to another edition of the Drury Outdoors 100% Wild Broadcast brought to you by Onyx Hunt. I am Matt Drury, and I have a special co-host today, Mark Drury. Tim Chelsvik is out with a sick kid at home. He said, hey, stay I need out. to stay away from this microphone. Yeah. <laughs> so we got Mark in, and we got uh, a special guest with us today, too. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this one, and if there was a convenient time for Tim to miss a podcast, this is it, because this is really the guest that I love talking to annually throughout the year, and it's especially an honor today to be here with our guest. Absolutely. We hate when we have to talk to him from a, from a regard of, you know what, we probably messed up a little bit, but without further ado, we have Tracker john engelkin what's up tracker john hey there matt hi mark uh good to see you guys uh we're doing well uh, glad to be here very good well so to, to kind of give a little bit of a backstory of our history together you know of course those of you that that may be in deercast probably have been seeing tracker john in the elite version in, in deercast track but our relationship dates way 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 back further than that mark when did did you and tracker john first meet each other you know i think uh i first learned of tracker john through joe gizdick if i'm not mistaken uh joe told me yeah. about tracker john and his capabilities this is back at the same time that i met tom ware so that would go back maybe 15 years, John? 13? Yeah, 15? I'm going to say uh, probably 2006. Yeah, so 14 years ago or so. And yeah. uh, since then, we've enjoyed many, many conversations, many fun times together, and some incredible tracking experience. I mean, he has, he has taught me so much, not only about how to track with his incredible dogs but also as i observe them i learn a little bit about what deer are doing with their sense of smell so he's taught me a lot of things over the years and it, it was a, a real pleasure to have him aboard for deer cast track so tracker john give us a little bit of your backstory how you got into this i mean because it's a whole different world i mean there, it's a real talent that you have to work on and continue to uh um uh, try to nurture and figure out exactly how to train your dogs and how many different dogs you need to have on, you know, at the ready. So give us a little bit of your backstory, how you got into it in, in the beginning. Well, you know, I've, I've been doing this, uh, for close to 40 years and, uh, for quite a while now, uh, full time. I mean, it's, it just doesn't end. But what a lot of people don't realize is that I've actually got a pretty heavy bow hunting background myself. I used to be a, a hardcore traditional hunter. I used to build my own bows, shot moose, deer, caribou, bears, uh, all with my homemade stuff. So I actually got into the dog tracking thing for my own purposes. And, uh, you know, Way back then, I, I didn't know of anybody else doing it, so it was kind of self-taught, and it just uh, grew over the years. And then as I refined my techniques and started to get good at it, well, naturally, friends know of it, and they want your help. And uh, the next thing you know, it's friends of friends, and then friends of friends of friends, and it just kind of kind of snowballed with uh, the success uh we were having so it wasn't something i actually planned for 
beyond just being able to take care of uh, my, my own needs, but it uh, <laughs> certainly is blown up to something I would have never imagined. And then all of a sudden you become a hot commodity in the fall in the Midwest. He's everybody's <laughs> best friend when they make a bad shot. Okay. Right. Where's well, John? <laughs> you know, I, if there's a lot of hunting going on, there's going to be a need for the service. And try as you might to make a good shot. If, if you're doing a lot of hunting sooner or later, uh, something's going to happen. Uh, whether you've made a bad shot, whether the weather conspires against you, the, the, uh, the, the wound itself is just something that's bleeding internally rather than externally. So it's very difficult to, to run the trail. There's all kinds of things that can happen. And if uh, a lot of things are going on sooner or later, things are going to happen. So how, how long did it take you to, and I'm sure I know how you are. You're a perfectionist. So you probably would say, Hey, I still have not perfected it, but how long did it take you to become proficient in your craft? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know whether there's a really a, a direct, uh, answer to that. Uh, like you say, it's, it's a matter of levels. The thing that I've come to realize is that to have some success at trailing with the dog is actually pretty easy. Running the easy trails is probably easier than people would think, but it's the tough ones. The tough ones are probably actually more difficult uh, to trail than, than people would imagine. So it's where on that continuum you want to, uh, to, to, to be. And of course, I'm looking to be that guy where if I show up, you're chance of recovery could not be better. So you're right, uh, Matt, that for me, I'm still striving and still trying to, to get better. And uh, when you're doing it at my level and I've got to have multiple dogs, well, it's hard enough to train one to, to be at a super high level, but to maintain multiples, uh, then it all of a sudden <laughs> becomes uh, pretty much a full-time job. And, you know, that's the thing, as you talk about your dogs, that's the thing that always intrigues me are the conversations we have about each individual dog, their personality on the trail, around the customer, with the deer, all of those things. Take us through what you look for in terms of a serviceable dog that you know you can put in front of customers in a multitude of situations. Um, well, as you're alluding to, every dog is an individual just the same as people are individuals. So how one uh, thinks and works is going to be different than, uh, than another. So as the handler, you've got to understand all that and you've got to put enough time into uh, the work with the dog so you know how to interpret, handle, and read uh, that particular dog. Uh, so a lot comes down to the training. I, uh, there's just no getting away from it that it just takes a lot of time, a lot of time with each dog to, to learn its mannerisms, to be able to read. You know, if you're, if you're running a trail that's uh, an easy trail, let's say, uh, 
Uh, it's not hard to read the dog. It's pretty obvious their 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 mannerisms. But when things are are difficult and faint and complicated and and distorted, then it's then it's a whole different scenario. It's very subtle clues, and it it becomes way more difficult to read those subtle clues through the dog's uh, behaviors and and uh, body language and mannerisms. And that's that's all part of all that time you put in behind the dog to be able to 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 do that be, because generally, yes, you're you're following the dog, but, and people might think, well, there's tracker John. All he's got to do is follow the dog, hang on to that tracking line and you're good to go. Well, there is actually a lot more to it than, than what the casual observer might see, how I'm interpreting dog in it. And quite subtly, I can influence what the dog is doing. So that's a double-edged sword. Sometimes you can work to your advantage. Sometimes it works against you. So it's all those subtleties that require the time with the individual dog. So right now, how many dogs do you do you have that you feel confident to go take a trail or to take you know to a client's job? How many dogs do you have on, I guess, on staff, quote unquote <laughs> staff, where where you feel co- confident? Hey, this dog can get it done, and uh, I know they can do the job. Well, you know, you always got your favorites, and you, we can look back to my famous dog Jesse and. And all she did, and she literally worked with me for 11 years. So when you've got a dog like that, uh, it's hard not to reach for your big gun when, you know, somebody's trophy of a lifetime is on the line. And that does make it difficult uh, putting a a younger, newer dog into the rotation. But I try in training to to cover so many things and have have a dog so that – I am confident that we can use it on the real thing. Unfortunately, this year I've uh, had a pretty rough year. And last year I was traveling with four bloodhounds. uh, And I've actually lost two of them to old age and and cancer uh, this summer. Uh, Presently, my uh, German Shepherd that uh, was my caribou dog in the far north when I did that for 20 years. Uh, my last caribou dog, L. she's in her final day. So I'm experiencing a lot of loss this year. So that's pretty heartbreaking. So presently, I've got Janie. She's, I guess you'd call my big gun right now and doing the uh, majority of the, the work. And, and near and dear to uh, the Drury's, I think, is my little uh, rising star, Willa. Who's, who's done some great work for me this year. So presently, I'm, I'm running the two of them, toying with the idea of getting a third, uh, just because I've got to cover my bases, you know. Uh, sometimes you just tire a dog out, and just the dog's no different than a person. If you're tired and beat up, maybe you're not going to be doing your best work, so i got to be able to rotate another dog in. Heaven forbid somebody gets sick or uh, injured during the season, then that that dog might be out of uh, the rotation, and then you got to have another one or two to to, to back up with. Uh, fortunately, this season, uh, knock on wood, it looks like uh, we uh, 
made it through the season without any injuries or, or anything like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say we've, uh, Janie and, and Will and myself, uh, survived another season. That, that's the interesting thing is we, you know, we've worked with you as Mark alluded to for you know, over a decade now. And we've, we see, a unfortunately probably for you and, and us, we see at least a couple times a year between all the different groups that we have out there. And that's always the fun part for me is to get in, uh, to sit and listen to your stories usually after we you know have a successful track job and and get to hear some of the crazy tales of of uh, the trail for you and where all you've had to go or you know I remember a story you told about a deer pinning was it Jesse down one time and you know like the the, the craziness that can Jesse happen on the trail me. was it you yeah <laughs> Well, Jesse first, and when I tried to uh, uh, prevent her from being killed, then the deer quickly uh, turned on me and had me pinned down. It was trying to gore me, and that's happened actually a couple of times. Uh, trail enough wounded stuff, sooner or later, something's coming back at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so in in that scenario. Um, you know, what's, what's going through your mind? Uh, obviously you see your dog and, and if your dog's pinned down, I mean, it's a, that's your child, right? I mean, that's how you feel about these animals. It's, I'm sure it's pretty nerve wracking when you see like something like that take place. Oh, totally. I mean, it's, it's true. I don't uh, have children. They are my children. My animals are my children. Not only that, but uh, they're my livelihood. That's, uh, that's what I'm doing now. So, uh, and, and I don't, these, my dogs aren't kennel dogs. My dogs are, are living inside with me. So they are very much a part of my family. They are my family. So yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a bad situation when something like that happens, but there's other dangers on the trail, uh, uh, going off uh, an embankment or a cliff or just uh, uh, getting hurt in any kind of uh, number of ways. So there's there's always things that can go on. Uh, Janie actually had two rough uh, seasons where she basically was out the entire two seasons, not last year, the season before that and the season before that. Uh, one time she got uh, tangled up with a big 12 pointer and uh, she ended up getting uh, some severe infection from that encounter. And she, I thought she was dying as she was close to that. She went into surgery for that one and took several months to, to recover from that. The season before that, she was also out of commission from a tick-borne illness, uh, really rough shape. I thought she was dying from that. So we've, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's some uh, bad sides to all this too. Uh, and as I always say, things go in streaks sometimes. Uh, so you run into these rough spots and hopefully that rough spot's done. And now we're going to be on uh, clear sailing for a while. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah. How many, uh, days a year do you practice? You know, I, I know when you get into the season, it's, it's go time, but starting about now through the start of the season, how often do you practice with each individual dog? You have two currently Willa and Janie. How often will you run each? I would assume Willow would perhaps get the most practice because she's younger or perhaps not. I don't know. 
No, uh, Willa is definitely the the focus now. I, when we get done with this podcast, I've got a practice trail out. I'm going to be running it. Uh, so for me, it, it literally doesn't end. It's year round, and it's pretty much every day. Uh, trailing a lot, if not every day, a lot. Uh, and the dogs have got to be exercised. These are high energy working dogs. You, a lot of people have a misconception about a bloodhound or they've seen too much Beverly hillbillies or something like that, where the, the old bloodhound is, uh, laying about on the porch and barely moving. And, uh, that's not the case. I would call them at least medium energy, if not high energy dogs. Willa's, uh, pretty much off the charts 24 <laughs> seven. Uh, so you, if you're not doing something with these dogs, uh, you got trouble. Uh, and I always like to say a tired dog is a good dog. So it, you, and, and it's surprising, uh, running trails is very tiring for the dogs. And I don't necessarily mean in a physical sense because it's not physical so much. You could an easy trail, you could pretty much run all day and doesn't tire the dog out. But those ones, they've really got to concentrate and sniff and work for every inch, fight for every inch. Those are mentally exhausting for the dog. So what I'll see is if I run a practice trail with a dog, um, the rest of the day is a lot easier to manage with them. If they're not doing anything, if I don't uh, exercise them, I mountain bike with them, snowshoe in the wintertime, we're always doing something. So they're getting, getting uh, yesterday, I think we did about five miles. So you got to burn that energy off. And, and Willa, especially because she is a puppy, a big puppy, uh, she's all excited and everything in the world is uh, fun and new and exciting. And you got to burn some of that off to get her to focus down and, and really fight for it. When you put out these practice trails, what exactly are you doing? What, what are you putting out exactly for, for them to run these practice trails in the off season? Uh, for the most part, you're putting out blood trails. I save blood uh, from deer that are recovered. I've got a small outfitter that I do their work, and they're very good about saving me blood uh, when they gut their deer and put it in the freezer. In fact, I just picked it up from them yesterday. So uh, that gets bottled and put in the freezer, and, and that's primarily the, uh, the scent that I'm using. Uh, my dogs are trained to blood scent and the scent of wounded game. And that's what we're focusing on. And that's what I use in training. So are you dripping it? Are you spraying it or to, uh, take us through a practice trail? Uh, that one that you want to be a little tough on them. Uh, well, if you want it to be tough, I mean, you use minute amounts of blood. And so with a puppy, you're, you know, you're putting out obvious stuff that uh, you're, you're, the main thing above all with the dog, it needs to be reliable and specific to the blood scent. Uh, that probably is the biggest requirement the dog has to have is absolute reliable, reliability to uh, the scent that you're, that, uh, you're searching for. Uh, if you've got that, you've got, you know, 75% of the ball game is because a lot of times when we're running blood trails, there's nothing visual to see. Now, just because it's not visual for a human to see doesn't mean that uh, it's not there for the 
the uh, dog to pick up. I mean, just molecules of scent that have drifted down. Uh, there's nothing to see, but it's there for the dog and the dog's got to be reliable to that. And as I said earlier, if things are obvious, it's a really uh, lethal shot and that deer is just smelling uh, dead deer walking to the dog. Well, then uh, it's pretty easy to read the dog and to have confidence. But uh, if there's nothing to see and it's faint and the dog is really having to work for it and it's maybe not a real clean line, well, then you better have uh, confidence in your dog that it's 100% reliable or nearly so, so that you can keep going without any visual evidence. And when the dog is, you know, not totally locked on, fish on, just blasting it out, but having to work for it and uh, circling and then maybe the, do the deer has done maneuver. So to, to get all through that, you need reliability. That's the main thing. I have a couple questions here on, on this, this topic. So, <clears throat> you know, one of the things that, that I've learned through time here, when we're tracking with you, we always stay back and, and try not to, even when we first, ex, you know, kind of go through all efforts to find the deer on, on our own before we call you, um, you're, you're always telling us to be careful about where we're putting our own scent, you know, try not to mess up the trail basically. Right. So when you set out, your test trails for your dogs what do you do for your own scent control like are, are you do you have to be careful of your boots having smell or you, you know what i mean are you trying to be as scent free as possible so that it, they don't latch on to your scent at all or are they only they're only latching on to a blood scent uh one of the reasons i am train my dog specific to blood is because blood is a long lasting scent. Um, more so than a track scent, uh, or some of these other things you might have to deal with or, uh, be able to train your dog to, to focus on. So when I'm running practice trails, I'm not too concerned about my scent. Uh, and there's other ways you can proof against that. Uh, cross trails, different things uh, that you set up in the, in the, in the practice trail to uh, uh, train against those things. And uh, you just have to be inventive uh, in your training. And I'm fairly confident I can train against pretty much anything that I'm going to encounter on the trail. So do you utilize GPS or when you're setting out these test trails? So you, cause I know you'll leave some for a day or two, you know, you, to make it harder and harder, you've left some out, right. For a few days, do you leave GPS kind of, uh, coordinates as to where you had put, uh, spots of blood or how do you go about that process? Now, the only thing uh, I mark is the start of the trail with a flag and the end of the trail uh, with a flag. Uh, and pretty much if I, if I need to or want to, I can, you know, I, I more or less remember where I went when I put the trail out. And I can target uh, specific landmarks if I really want to, you know, be accurate about, okay, go from that big pine tree over across the field to that apple tree, that kind of thing. Uh, but a lot of times, 
when I practice trailing to make it more realistic and getting back to the trust issue, I try to go places that I haven't been in a long time or when it's thick and I purposely don't pay attention to uh, the trails I'm laying so that when I do go back and run it with the dog, it's more like the the natural experience of uh, uh, following a deer where you don't know where the deer uh, has gone and to, to make it more realistic. It's pretty interesting. So, you know, before we go too much further, we got a pretty good question of the day today. So I want to get into that and, and, and try to help answer uh, this gentleman's question that he had. So the question of the day is brought to you by Sportsman's Channel, the new home of Winchester and Drury's Natural Born and your destination for everything red, wild, and blue. Hi, my name is Steven. I'm from Pennsylvania. I have a question about uh, tracking dogs. How well can a tracking dog a blood trail a deer in wet conditions or after a, a rain or after it's been raining or misting for several hours. I had an I had a occasion this summer or the past fall where I hit a buck a little far back and it rained the rest of the day and we elected to do a grid search instead of get a tracking dog out because we figured it would be too wet for a tracking dog. I'm wondering if that was a mistake, not at least attempting to get a tracking dog out. So thanks for your help. Great question, Stephen. And uh, this is something that I'm sure you probably run into quite often, whether I would think would be one of the biggest factors in, in how quickly you need to go in after a, a whitetail. So, Tracker John, take us through your thought process here. Okay, well, that is a good question and actually a common misconception. Uh, I hear that a lot. People assume that after it's rain, it's gonna be difficult or impossible for the dog to be able to trail, and uh, that is simply not the case. Uh, people are viewing it uh, from their own perspective, which is visual, uh, whereas for the dog, it's obviously uh, scent-related. So the analogy I would give is uh, consider those scent molecules, uh, the blood scent molecules to be uh, particles, dust particles. And let's, let's say that you could actually see them, but they're so minute you could barely see them. Well, if you sprinkle that across a lawn or some grass and you could barely still see it visually, but uh, then it rains, well, it washes it all down off the blades of grass, down into the dirt. You can no longer visually see it, but it's still there and the dog can scent it. So actually, uh, rain, I've tracked through some pretty heavy rain and it hasn't made a difference. Uh, it's, it, rain doesn't really worry me as far as the dog scenting. What it does do, obviously, is it removes the visual for the humans involved, including myself. And it's always nice when you're doing a trail to have a little visual confirmation at, at some point. But on an easy trail, on a, de a dead deer walking trail where the dog's really locked on and it's obvious, it uh, doesn't make any difference. But on those complex trails, faint trails, uh, maybe the, de the deer is uh, uh, marginally wounded, uh, then it sure is nice to have that little bit of uh, confirmation. But uh, as far as Steve goes, yeah, that, that probably was a tactical error. Uh, 
blind searching to me uh, is always the uh, method of last resort. And when that's all you've got, and, and that goes for me too. I mean, trailing is where it's at. If the, the dog can take you exactly where the deer went, uh, that obviously is way superior than even doing an area search with my dog where you're just trying to cover a lot of ground and hit the, the scent of the carcass because you may be looking in the totally wrong direction. You could be miles away from where the, the uh, target actually is. So trailing is always the superior method. And uh, so long story short, yep, uh, I wouldn't hesitate to, to uh, attempt a, a, a trail that's been rained upon. Good answer. Appreciate that, John. I've got a quick question for you, and I think we've talked about this before. Why always females? All of your dogs that I, I've met and trailed with have always been female. Uh, well, one of the big reasons is size. Uh, as, as you know, my dogs aren't little. Uh, my females tend to be about 90, 95 pounds, and that's lean pounds, muscular pounds. If I wanted to fatten them up a little bit, I could probably put another 10, 15 pounds on them. But males, uh, another, oh, can be another 20, 30 pounds on top of what a, a standard female weighs. So I sure as heck don't need that dragging me through the, the bushes, although the guides and some of these young guys love it when I'm getting ripped through the briars <laughs> and uh, they think it's fun, but, uh, I don't need any more of that than, uh, necessary. And then once I've got a couple females, how do I put a, a male into the mix? Somebody's in heat and how's that going to work uh, through the season? You know, I'm living, uh, we're all clustered together in a little tracker shack or riding to trails uh, all in the, in, in the truck together. So it, it would be impossible to, to separate somebody uh, from the males if uh, they're in heat or whatever. So uh, I, I'm locked into females. <laughs> That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it does. Is there a demeanor difference outside of the size? Uh, do you prefer working with the with the females, or is there an intelligence difference, or would males do just as well outside of just the, the size and the, and the heat issue? Well, that's a subject for debate, and perhaps one I'm not totally qualified to comment on because I haven't had a bunch of males Uh you could make the argument that males are better because if you look at a lot of dog field trials and whatnot, it seems to be a lot, mostly males that are winning. But is that because people don't get females for the heat issue? They don't want to uh, be out of commission during a dog's heat or something when a field trial could be going on. So I don't know. I don't know what the, the, the answer to that is. Uh, for certain applications, which I'm not involved in, say like police work, uh, where they want and a you know a, a, a fairly aggressive dog, it can do bite work and whatever else. Then all it's almost all males and very f few females can uh, handle that. There are a few, but it's the exception. But of course, that's not what what we're doing. And the females, I uh, just like they bond to me well. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's a, it's a team. Uh, so for the other reasons I've already explained, that's, that's where I'm at and that's where I'm staying. He's, he's all in. <laughs> he's a ladies man. <laughs> I have no choice. <laughs> 
Well, I I think this has been a great podcast, but <clears throat> I want to save some of our discussion for another time and another podcast. So absolutely, uh, unless you have anything else to add, Mark or, or Tracker John, you have anything else to add for for our question of the day? I think we're gonna wrap this one up and uh, start a new one here shortly. Absolutely, we appreciate you very much, Tracker John. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure all these years, absolutely. and we're not done. No, no we're way. not. <laughs> Terry isn't getting any younger, though. <laughs> Nor is Tracker John. Hey, who are you looking at? <laughs> All right. Well, for this edition of the 100% Wild Podcast, we want to say thank you, and we'll see you on the next one. Peace out.